With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, well, let's get into it. Guys, thank you for coming on. So we got Greg and Damon from Wild World Rescue in Bradenton, Florida. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the freaking awesome wildlife that we have i have so many interesting questions about like what's going on currently in the wildlife because the everglades are shrinking and there there's so much cool stuff there they just opened up pythons again where you can get them that stuff is so cool and you guys basically your every day is rescuing animals from owners like me that think that they can <laughs> just take care of an animal, they get well, it, you, and then... I'll... You know, you have land, so, you know, a lot of people we get these things from, you know, they live in an apartment and they're trying to keep a big tortoise or something, so yeah. you're at least responsible in that way that you've you've got some land for them. I hope so. That's that's the tough part, though, because they grow so quickly. Yeah. Like you get a sulcata and then all of a sudden five years go by and you're like, oh, this thing's huge. That's, yeah, that's it. I think everybody thinks that they're just kind of, you know, cute, small when they see them at the pet store. You know, you go to the pet store, you never see a big one for sale yeah. it's really rare that you would because most people don't want a giant one they want the tiny one and unfortunately the ones that get really big are one of the cheapest ones to get so. yeah get like a russian or something you yeah. can kind of maintain that a little bit so what do you guys do on your day-to-day how do you describe your deal then so, great question <laughs> different for both of us and different yeah. day so yeah i'll let greg explain first what so he's the vice president of our organization we're a not-for-profit wildlife rescue but we also deal with invasive species, all kinds of other stuff. But I have a different day to day than he has. I'll let you explain, let him explain his background and what he does first, yeah. and then we'll get into me. Our biggest focus is wildlife rescue. So day to day, especially with all the building going on in Florida, every day there's animals that are injured out on the highway and out on the roads and in people's backyards. So we are constantly traveling, finding those animals in distress, taking phone calls, and so on and so forth. Uh, and on the side, we're always trying to do educational things. So we've, we've done trainings for a lot of first responders, um, how to handle dangerous animals like alligators, crocodiles, venomous snakes and pythons and all that stuff. And we try to do a lot of education for kids. So we're always trying to do outreach programs and stuff like that. Damon's different than me because I'm a full-time scientist. So I run a biotech company in Sarasota. I'm there in a lab coat, and when Damon is giving tours, if he picks up the phone and calls me and says, hey, somebody just hit a bobcat. So move the closer. You're good. Keep talking. So someone I, just hit a bobcat. Yeah, yeah. I tear off my lab coat and go running, and I have a flexible enough job that it lets me do that. But okay. I'm working that 9-to-5 job, but I still have the flexibility to jump up, run, rescue an animal, mm-hmm. get it in my truck. And a lot of times that animal might make an iteration through five steps, you know, somebody that can pick it up and drive it somewhere else. It gets to Damon, we get it to a veterinarian or we get it to one of the other animal rescues. Oh, wow. So you guys are dealing with like dangerous animals in their most vulnerable state. 
all we the do. time. Yeah, I've yeah. literally had to like hand capture uh, wild bobcats that have been hit by cars and stuff like that. And, you know, certain situations where, you know, you just don't have any other options. So, you know, of course, I'm vaccinated for rabies, so don't try that at home. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but no, yeah, we, we deal with a lot of really dangerous stuff and we deal with a lot of really cute, small, fuzzy stuff. And uh, pretty much, you know, anything people call us about that's injured or orphan that needs help. I think it's safe to say almost everything we do, don't try it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. I mean, Florida, a lot of things are trying to get you or kill you. Or, yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. definitely true. But if you have a little education and understand the animals, you know, most of them, you know, they would rather flee and than fight in most cases. And, you know, for me, uh, I am a licensed venomous snake keeper. And, you know, though I do wildlife rescue every day, a big part of what I do is relocating snakes, uh, getting them from people's homes. Actually, right here in this area, I get a lot of calls uh, for a lot of venomous uh, diamondbacks, uh, water moccasins, coral snakes, stuff like that. And I take them out and relocate them to areas away from the public so people don't end up getting, you know, bit or their pets don't get pit, bit, stuff like that. So uh, that's a big part of what I do every day. But uh, I do give tours of wildlife. We have a facility located at Mix and Fruit Farms in East Bradenton, where I've been for 13 years uh, educating the public on wildlife. And all the animals there are either permanently disabled or they're animals that were turned over because they were seized by Florida Fish and Wildlife, things like that that can't go back to the wild. And so I go through and explain why they're there and why they have to be here. But my main focus is rescuing injured animals and getting them fixed up and returned to the wild. I work with closely with another wildlife hospital on Anna Maria Island, and I am a wildlife rehabber. So we get those as many of those animals fixed up and put back in the wild when we can. That's our main focus. But uh, we take in a lot of animals that need homes permanently as well. Yeah, it's tough because we're in such a highly developing area so we're just pushing in on their territory and then we push in on their territory and then we're like well now it's a problem for them and then right. you guys and have to deal like with that. Like you just said Florida has got some dangerous animals that other states don't have mm -hmm. which is again why we're constantly trying to educate everybody you know people move into Florida and they move into their little manicured lawn neighborhood they don't know what's outside the neighborhood mm -hmm. or what might come into the neighborhood and they don't they don't necessarily teach their kids that. So we believe that kids should be able to identify venomous snakes versus non-venomous snakes and understand them a little bit better than, you know, in a state up yeah. north where you might not have to be quite so careful because nothing's out there to eat. Yeah, Long Island, we didn't really have to worry about anything. Like, if you don't get in yeah. the water, you're not going to get yeah. bit by a shark. You're pretty safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's kind of just that maybe a snapping turtle. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Michigan, and, um, you know, we, we have a venomous snake up there, but I never saw one. And, and um, you know, uh, moving here, I see more wildlife in my backyard than I would see out hiking an entire day in Michigan. So, you know, we're just loaded here. And you're right about the developments. It there's no question it plays a big role in forcing wildlife out of those areas. And we end up getting those calls for those animals that are scattering and going into neighborhoods where they're not familiar with or ending up in roadways and getting hit by cars, things like that. It has a very negative impact, unfortunately. It's tough, too, because, you know, bobcats obviously are something you want to, like, rehab and bring out. But, like, if somebody hits a coyote, is that something, like, where, where do you kind of, like, <clears throat> you know, there's an ethical balance you want to, like, help them and put them all out. But like the coyotes also are pretty, pretty so, bad. Like if you look at states like California, no, they're constantly fighting coyotes off. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely, um, 
you know, there, there are some issues sometimes with that, but I kind of look at it like, you know, we used to have a lot more predators in Florida. We had, you know, red wolves and we had, um, you know, a lot more Florida panthers and eastern cougars, I believe, came down uh, as well. And so, and a lot more bears and stuff yeah, like that. I was going to say, were the black bears this far down in yeah, Florida? Yeah, we, we have black bears here. Their population is significantly lower than it was historically. And it already now, I mean, there was a hunt maybe like eight years ago or something like that. They allowed a big hunt in Florida for the black bears to reduce their populations. And they are nowhere near their historic levels that they were at one point. So I kind of look at coyotes, even though they kind of moved, some were introduced here, some would have moved in naturally anyways. Um, they kind of fill a gap a little bit of where some of those predators that we lost that are now endangered or gone, you know, they've taken up that role. Some of the coyotes are even hybridized with red wolves. And so they're, you know, remnants of that as well. And so they eat some of the animals, rodents, things like that, but there's no question. Then they get into a neighborhood and they're going after people's cats or their dogs and things like that. Yeah. Chickens, (laughs) stuff like that. So, so there's a negative and a positive with that, like anything, but I also look at like, can it really be controlled? I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, they're they're kind of here to stay. And and I personally love them. We've had coyotes before. If we've ever had orphans come in, they're raised and put in captivity at wildlife facilities where they can be on display and used for educational purposes. That makes um, sense. But, uh, you know, uh, I believe now the FWC has a rule that you can release them if you have uh, like it's something like a 50-acre property where the property owner gives permission, mm-hmm. something along that lines. But they're um, considered naturalized. Yeah, naturalized because... Now, which means they've filled a spot in the ecosystem and they're not going to be pushing yeah. out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So FWC kind of claimed them as a different level yeah, than what they were. Yeah. But then the boars out on property ruin oh, yeah, yeah. No, all yeah. the farmland. <laughs> yeah, they, and those are, those are another one, a great example of like, uh, you know, they... They don't even, I don't even think, keep them at bay with what they're doing right now because, uh, you know, they're just everywhere. I mean, they're begging you to come out there and hunt them. Yeah, they're, they're all over the place in Florida and they do, they do a lot of damage to native wildlife and it is definitely a problem. I know a lot of people are more concerned with their property damage and stuff like that. For me, things come down to the negative impact on the native wildlife and, you know, they eat all kinds of ground animals, uh, snakes and stuff like that in the ground that are native here and serve a purpose. So, and even destroying crops is, you know, hard on that the too, economy yeah. Yeah. and like the, like it, yeah. it's hard on the people when yeah. you have, you know, 50 boars come in and destroy a whole field. Yeah. No question. They are already uh, fighting disease in a lot of like, and, and the boar were, are one of those animals that like, you can look around the world. They've been introduced to places all around the world and they've successfully established themselves. And it seems like no matter how hard they try to reduce their numbers, they continue Australia, you know, all those places. They're just so tough. Yeah, they are. They're very tough. And I've actually rescued quite a few of them over the years. And I, I actually love them. They're fun to work with if you get them at a young age, but the adults are very dangerous animals to deal with. All right up here from a girl. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I've been tossed before by them and uh, it's unpleasant. I've had to wrestle quite a few of them before. (laughs) Yeah, the boars are, uh, we just have so much invasiveness, it seems like. It It seems like it's a really hot ground for a lot of things to flourish that shouldn't be. And even like the pythons, I was just reading about how they're pretty much ruined the Everglades. Yeah, you know, uh, Florida, unlike many other states in the U.S., uh, you know, it's warm pretty much year-round. So it allows a lot of these exotic, you know, um, uh, tropical and subtropical species to survive here that 
wouldn't survive in states north of us. And and the problem is happening everywhere in the U.S., but because Florida's warm, they survive here. And so people are releasing their pets all over. But Florida, it's become a major problem. And both Greg and I have been heavily involved in the past in removing pythons from the Everglades. We've captured a lot down there. We started doing that back around like 2010, uh, around there. And, you know, rules got stricter and stricter, and we just didn't, you know, continue to get involved with that. But we've captured quite a few down in the Everglades. The real issue is that it was so much fun. We had a ton of experience with (laughs) big pythons and anacondas and snakes like that. So all of a sudden to have them in your backyard, it's exciting. I was just thinking that. I kind of want to go. so much fun. (laughs) Yeah. We'd go down there. We'd catch a few. And at the time, when when the, when uh, when they were first being found down there, we could microchip them and find them homes. We could send them off to zoos or collectors or the roadside attractions that wanted to put a Burmese python uh, out on display. And they got stricter and stricter and stricter with people that wanted to do that. And since we don't want to kill anything, you know, we love snakes. Yeah. I absolutely love snakes, so I really don't want to be a part of I understand that. Yeah. I, I, yeah, they're great animals, but it's so yeah. tough because yeah. you're in that issue where it's like, if I don't kill this snake, how many small mammals is it going to take? Right. Out? They're they're one of the ones that you know. Um, as a rescue, you know, we we're all about trying to save animals, but I have nothing against people who are down there removing them and right. and euthanizing them as well. And actually, many of the guys that are hunting them are huge snake lovers that actually work with wildlife and in wildlife rescues and stuff like that. But you have to realize at the end of the day, they're killing our native wildlife. So it's really a question of, do you kill the snake or do you let them kill our native animals? So an animal is going to die one way or another. Uh, it's just a matter of which one actually belongs here and which one doesn't. So when it comes to that stuff, not against it. It's not my thing to go out and, you know, hunt them. But I've captured a lot in the past. And like Greg said, you know, we used to be able to place them in captivity. And I think that's one of the real um, failures on the state's part that they haven't looked at is that, you know, they banned taking them alive from the Everglades. And I'm not against banning them here in Florida unless you have a license for them to use them for educational purposes. But I really think exporting them out of the state for the pet trade would get a lot of people uh, to come into the Everglades and start capturing them. It would give them an incentive to go out there and capture them if they could sell them out of state to the pet trade because there's a huge uh, trade for them and people want to keep them as pets around the U.S. where it's not illegal and where they wouldn't survive if they got into the wild, you know, in one of these cold states. So uh, I'm not against doing that, and I think that that would help a lot, but the state's gone in the opposite direction where it's just like, don't take any alive, kill them all. At the very least, when they find those 18, 19-footers that are just amazing specimens it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
those should kind of be able yeah. to be safe. There's yeah. zoos that you know, want, there's zoos and facilities that want them, but right. they've made it so strict and made it so now the law says you cannot take them alive from the Everglades. There's, you know, so it's really kind of sad to see such an amazing animal like those 19 footers. 19 that get foot is crazy. It's just, yeah. a, it would be a great example for something to be on display and to talk about the problem, you know. But if somebody, you know, was to get a 12 foot snake from the Everglades that has spent its whole life out in the wild, how much of like a pet can that be? Because some people have, you know, eight foot snakes that they raised and no. they like they live on their shoulder <laughs> yeah. and they hang out. Sure. But if you get some wild snake, I don't know if that's going to want to live with your dog. The majority of the pythons that are removed are actually small ones. So the okay. big ones are the ones that make it to the news or social media and stuff like that because it's cool and it looks big. But the majority are actually small. There's a lot of nests that are raided that these guys will capture, you know, just hatching out of the eggs, you know, these oh, okay. these baby pythons and stuff. So there's definitely the ones there. And even, you know, ones that have been in the wild and they're four or five feet, you can tame those down, no problem. Burmese python are pretty tameable. Yes, when they get up to those larger sizes, they're not going to tame down in most cases. Um, but, you know, for, you know, a facility like ours or like a zoo, you know, you don't necessarily need to be playing with it and have it on your shoulder all the time. It's more meant yeah. for exhibit and, you know, showing, you know, how big they get. But so there's always those stories of like, oh, a woman sleeps with hers every <laughs> single night. And like, because snakes are weird like that. There's no other animal down there that you could raise and it is going to be like a pet. Like you're not getting a gator and suddenly it's going to be like That's hanging out with you. That's one of the you. points that we bring up a lot with people that are afraid of snakes. And, you know, we, we might on a regular hike go through, and especially if we have kids with us, pick up several animals to show them and teach them and show them this or that. How many animals can you walk down into the forest and just gently pick up? Yeah. You pick up a cute little fuzzy bunny, it's probably still going to bite your hand. Yeah, right? good luck getting one. Squirrel, yeah, yeah, and they're too fast. Squirrel, it's time. so cute, it's still going to bite you. Yeah. As long as you handle a snake gently, they learn very quickly. Yeah. And how many animals can you do that? Even with? the venomous ones you guys handle pretty well. Like they're not right. like like you can kind yeah. of hold them, keep their head away from you a little bit. Sure. They're not yeah. constantly trying to snap at you. Right. No, so it's nice to have an animal that you can interact with on that level. And... It's weird because they're the ones that everybody's the most scared of too. Yeah, like if yeah. you held like a gator and a snake, I bet you more people would shy away from the snake <laughs> they would actually yeah. i saw that all the time during tours uh you know bringing out a python there'd be people terrified of it and it's a big baby i've had it forever mm -hmm. and it's never bit anybody or even tried and they're terrified of it but i bring out an alligator and they come right to it and they're like let me hold the alligator the alligator even if it has tape on its mouth it can spin its head wacky it can slap you with its tail you know and so they can still do some damage and you know really they're the more dangerous of the two now you're locked in a box with both of them you know it could be equal if one's got a bad attitude but you know overall snakes tend to tame down more alligators are very tameable too in captivity working with them a lot of friendly alligators if you work with them but you're right like taking one straight from the wild sometimes that's not gonna you know yeah it seems so. very questionable I've always had tortoises and they're as cool as can be Mine, yeah. Mine act like dogs, like yeah, they walk chickens right over go on to top you of and, them. Like yeah. people don't understand. They're like, oh, it's just a tortoise. I'm like, no, it's got more of a personality than some dogs. Yeah, but we're finding out more and more through, you know, studies and research that reptiles are far more intelligent than people realize. And uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. And, you know, there are some snakes like pythons. They're not that smart, but they are tameable. But you get to some other snakes like a king cobra, you know, they're highly intelligent and they can learn and watch you and stuff like that, you know, so... Um, they're very smart animals, but they're still, they're definitely dangerous. Part of being dangerous is being intelligent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. uh, while we normally work with native wildlife, Damon and I both spent a couple of years doing extractions of venom from snakes from all around the world. 
So we've worked with all the mambas, taipans, mm-hmm. uh, most of the cobra species, king cobras and spitting cobras, and we've worked with just about everything. Oh, wow. So like worldwide venomous Absolutely. snakes all Absolutely. over the place. And you guys probably have to kind of, you're probably somewhat part of if somebody gets bit locally identification and that kind of stuff like what bit you the anti-venom and that help, kind of stuff but a lot of times help has to be so fast that the way we've helped the most i think is like with our training classes mm-hmm. and our local sheriffs they want those classes because sheriffs and fwc officers they're out there in the wild yeah. very quickly and a lot of them are hired and you know they're given a snake stick and a bucket and some tools and say here you go if there's ever a diamondback they don't know diamondbacks <laughs> And we do, so we've had a lot of classes where we bring out all the native snakes and then the venomous ones, and we actually let them do some hands-on and get the experience so that when they go into somebody's house because there's a dangerous situation, it's not just immediately being put on the spot with something that can kill you. It's, it's, hey, I've done this before, and you pick it up with a hook and you can put it in the bag. I I get texts and calls frequently for identifications, not just from the regular public, but from... Uh, veterinarians uh, sometimes because they get a lot of dogs that come in that are yep. bit and they bring a snake. The people bring the snake with them or a photo of it. They send it to me. What is it? And then uh, Sheriff's Department, uh, FWC texts me a lot for photos for identification of snakes and other animals, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, we, we worked for years in the venomous e- extraction facility. And, uh, you know, we have experience with the snakes from around the world. And that made life so much easier for me handling the snakes we have here in Florida because people look at these snakes as dangerous. But once you've worked with like, you know, uh, <laughs> something like a, mom, a nine uh, foot black mamba, yeah, and... forest cobras, stuff like that, you know, uh, it makes it a lot easier handling this stuff. Now, you should never let your guard down, obviously, but, um, you know, half the battle is just understanding the behavior uh, of the snakes and realizing how they're going to respond to everything you do. And then once you get that down pat, it's really easy to handle them. I don't look at it as avoiding the overall snake. I look at it as avoiding the fangs. That's the only thing you got to avoid. So if you just focus on that and realize that's the only part you got to worry about, the rest is pretty I easy. I had an electrician <laughs> in my lab a few months ago, and he was doing a, a running some 220 voltage lines live. And as he's doing it, he's got the wire in his hand, and he's leaning over, and he's like, I can't believe you work with those dangerous yeah. snakes. Yeah. I said, it's exactly what you're doing right now. Yeah. You're holding a 220-volt line. Yep. It's live, but you know what you're doing. Yeah. Right? That's so Damon and I worked with, with giant, you know, we had 14-foot king cobras that we were, we were working with daily that uh, we had to realign their nasal bones every day and flush them out and stuff. They don't like that. You know, a snake doesn't like to have stuff flushed into its nose. And a 14-foot king cobra, when it comes out of its cage, its, its head is up here, huh. right? And it's, it's, yeah. it's that big around. Uh, you get to a point of comfort where it's really no scarier than working with a regular snake because we know what to do. There's same some the snakes guy, that still terrify me. <laughs> like, I've worked with <laughs> venomous snakes my entire, like, adult life, and there's still a few that terrify me to work with. I sweat bullets. And if you don't... Something's wrong with you. <laughs> they all worry me. Like when I'm walking like somewhere, I'm like, I'd rather like a gator pop out and potentially yeah. bite my leg or something yeah. than like something that's venomous because yeah. like you don't know how quick that's going to really set yeah. in. And like then there's like a whole mystery of like you got to race time. You know, if you're yeah. bleeding, it's you're not really 
So our kind of tourniquet your leg or something, but if you got venom, I don't know. If you if you get bit by one of our native venomous snakes, you're probably going to be fine, unless you're really elderly or you're a really small child, uh, or if you just have an allergic reaction to it. Obviously, you know, um, going to shock, but. Um, you know, most of our hospitals do carry Crofab, the anti-venom that you can use for the viper species that we have here in Florida. Um, the only one, you know, would take more time is the coral snake, uh, which we have locally. Those are very unlikely to bite you. Um, you know, even if you were handling them in your hand, in most cases, they're not. But if they do, uh, it's a neurotoxic venom and you're, you're going to need anti-venom. Uh, and the closest place that probably has it, I think, is probably Venom 1 down in Miami. Right. Um, oh, maybe wow. Orlando at the Serpentarium So they'd have there. to airlift you. Yeah, they'll, they'll fly the anti-venom here. You just get to a hospital. As long as you get to the hospital, they can probably keep it alive. It takes a while for that venom to set in. Um, and they can probably keep you alive in the probably hospital. keep you alive. And, uh, and until the anti-venom arrives, they can get off the ground in like 15 minutes in the helicopter and be here probably in less than two hours with the the anti-venom for that. So your chance is really good. There's only been, I think, two or three deaths in the eastern U.S. in the last 70 years related to coral snake bites, and there's probably been dozens and dozens of bites. So, I mean, your chances are pretty good of survival yeah. these days, especially venomous snakes, too. The last time we had somebody... Uh, unfortunately passed away in Manatee County, uh, was a child, uh, and that was in, I think, 2000 or 2001. And uh, he was bit by a diamondback right here in Lakewood Ranch. And um, oh, Perfect. And, uh, yeah, and this is where I get most of my diamondback yeah. calls. And uh, so and it was really unfortunate, and he was a young kid, and it was more due to poor treatment at the hospital than it was the snake. Obviously, snake bite is what led to it, but... Um, the um, the poor treatment at the hospital so is just from, on education. Yeah, like and doctors I, and now nurses. I think a lot of doctors have got more educated on it. But I'll tell you what: if you if you get bit by a venomous snake, don't rely entirely on the doctor. Call the Venom One unit down in Miami, Miami Dade's uh, Venom One unit, because they have experts on hand that will be able to tell the doctors how to treat this snake bite, and they'll save you a lot of potential trauma. You know, doing fasciotomies and stuff like that that aren't necessary, which is cutting mm-hmm. open your arm and stuff like that. Um, you want to get in touch with them. Are you going to lose a limb likely if you get bit by one? Like if, you know, one gets my leg and it like, no. it's not going to kind of infect everything. They I mean, if you did nothing off. and just let it happen, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, in most cases now, you might have some permanent like damage, uh, muscle damage or something like that or tissue damage. But now if you get bit in the pinky or one of your fingers, you might lose like an end of your finger or something like that. Um, but in most cases nowadays, if you seek treatment pretty quick, you're probably going to make either a full recovery or just have, you know, mild issues with wherever the bite was uh, permanently. You know, you might have some issues with that. So That's I know quite a few people that have been mm-hmm. bitten by venomous snakes from around the world, including a lot of our native snakes here. And most of them, you know, have full function of whatever extremity that they were bit. So, okay. yeah. That's good. Most so you're, of them. you're okay for, yeah. <laughs> for the most part. There you go, Florida yeah. tourism. Yeah, no, you're, you might survive. Go visit the Everglades. <laughs> it's beautiful no. down there. No, there's there's no question we have tons of dangerous animals here, but, like, we do education for a reason because if you just educate yourself a little bit on those animals, you can learn how to avoid them and live with them without having to worry about that. Most snake bites come from people like walking barefoot in their yards and stuff like that at night or in the evening when snakes are active moving around. They're not paying attention. So always wear foot foot coverage when you're in your yard, especially in the evening when you can't see what's going on and bring a flashlight. If you don't cover your feet, I mean, you know, that's where most snake bites happen. People walking through your yard. And, oh, and when we teach classes, it's not just the stuff that could kill you. 
I mean, especially with kids, we we reach out and we teach the stuff that what what Florida plants and flowers are toxic and could mm-hmm. poison their kids or their animals, and what insects are kind of dangerous. None of them are going to kill you, but you know the striped stick insects are going to spray spray some venom in your face, and it could cause temporary blindness and need to be washed out. There's a lot of insects that bite really hard that people don't know about. We've got a bunch of stinging caterpillars that if you just touch them, you end up stung. I was going to ask about it. Isn't it yeah. the puss, right, yeah. they call it? The, the puss caterpillar yeah. is one of them, and it looks like Donald Trump's hair. And, <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, it's so beautiful, and you want to reach out and pet it, and kids love to touch things, right? You find a caterpillar, and, oh, man, it's so cute. Yeah. They're going to get stung. That's yeah, and you don't want to raise your kids skin. scared of it. No, like, you don't. So, I have a son on the way, and I don't want him to be scared of every animal that he comes across. Right, like, so teach them what they can and can't do. Kids are so with. much smarter than people give them credit for. If you teach them from a young age about these animals, they will learn, and they'll understand what's dangerous. And, you know, give them a mission. Tell them to, you know, I really want to know about this animal. If you see one, tell dad about it. Tell mom about it. If you see one, they're really cool, but we don't want to touch them, you know, and, and stuff like that. Kids learn quick and, and they realize what's dangerous and what's not. So biggest part difference, like we have other countries where people die all the time from snake bites and from crocodile attacks. And that's because there's not a lot of as much education done on it in some of those countries. And people are also forced to go into some of those water sources that wouldn't necessarily have to. But the biggest difference here in the United States, we do a heavy education on alligators. We put signs everywhere. And so people see an alligator death here or there in Florida and they think, oh, my God, the alligators are dangerous. But we actually only have about one to two deaths in the United States every year related to alligators. There are one and a half million alligators, at least in Florida, millions more throughout the southeast. That's a tiny number of deaths for how many alligators and how many people cross yeah. paths with each other. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of attacks every year. There's people bitten, losing arms and legs every year. But, you know, the chances of you dying here are very unlikely because of a lot of heavy education on alligators and the dangers of them. And then also signage everywhere that they just don't have in some of the more, you know, um, you know. Got more uh, shark attacks than yeah. that. Mm-hmm. More that, shark attacks yeah. than gator attacks, yeah, for there sure. Is, yeah, and uh, and so you know, and a lot of it when you look when you start to look at these alligator attacks and you know what happened, you know, ninety percent of the time it's human error, people doing things that they just shouldn't have been doing. A lot of them are literally deaths of people jumping into waters that had signs warning them there were alligators there. And even in I know in one case the guy said f the alligators and jumped in, and he was killed almost immediately when he jumped in. Oh, and the so on that one, yeah, so. <laughs> Now, there's very few cases where people were just, you know, la di and it flies out and attacks them. Uh, they just weren't paying attention. There was one not too long ago, the woman walking her dog in North Florida. Yeah, and, Disney uh, had a very famous one as well. Yeah, and that, and that one was, it was really sad. You know, there wasn't warning signs for the alligators there. There were no swimming signs. And uh, I think, you know, the people were from out of state and they said they, they admitted that, um, you know, they just didn't realize that alligators were in all the waters. Um and it Pretty was kind of guaranteed in Florida. Yeah, no, it, like it doesn't matter if it's a resort like Disney or something. There are alligators. They can climb five, six foot high chain link fences. They can swim through a storm drain and hold their breath for a long time to get through one side to the other. So you can. And that's one of the big things I always tell people too. people are always like if I see an alligator in the community in the pond, let's call FWC or Sheriff's Department and have it removed. You're no safer when you remove that alligator than you were when it was there. It's almost better that you know it's there than to not because now you think it's safer and that you might be able to go close to the edge of the water, get in the water. And now most alligators want nothing to do with you. They're afraid of you. But every once in a while, there's that one that somebody's been feeding or it's got babies around and it's a mother being protected. Right after that that toddler was killed in Disney years ago, we were doing a training 
Uh, we were teaching camp counselors from the Dream Oaks camp up on the Manatee River. We had 30 or 40 camp counselors, each of which was responsible for a group of kids right on the river. And most, a lot of them were out-of-state counselors, yeah. and they had no training. They didn't understand. They were asking us questions about snakes that we thought were really simple. So... Yeah, like, you should know this. Yeah, you should know this. Yeah. And, 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 you know, out-of-staters don't necessarily know that you, just because you don't see the alligator there doesn't mean that the alligator... And they're there. fast on land, too. Once they actually get Absolutely. on land, they're not slow. Like, oh, like, <laughs> a shark's easy. You get out of the water, right. you're safe. A gator will actually come from in the water, too, which is even crazier when you see them from from the salt water or from, right. like, the gulf. They right. swim up on the land, and yeah. that's... And that to us, that's easy because we, we also work with big crocodiles of different species. And we've had crocodiles, uh, Nile crocodiles and Cuban crocodiles, and I think Morillettes also that have, have chased us in and out of trees, mm-hmm. chased us around things. Yeah, if you've ever Don't heard the, the, whole, uh, the whole time. <laughs> the zigzag thing, if you've ever heard running in a zigzag, that's not true for everybody that's <laughs> listening or watching. If an alligator or crocodile chases you, run straight as fast as possible. If you can jump up, climb up something, they're clumsy and slow climbers, and they're not going to be able to climb up a tree or on top of a car. So uh, do not run zigzag. They'll run straight through your zigzag pattern and catch you even faster. You're going to trip and fall running back and forth. So, um, you know, they're quick on land. Get in a car or something. Yeah, get no, inside a vehicle. Yeah, if you maybe. can do anything to, yeah, just avoid that. But you know, my big thing is always telling people keep a buffer between you and the water, murky waters where you can't see what's going on, because um, you know they can hold their breath in some case for an hour or so, and they can sit there underwater just watching you, and you never see them there, and then they just wait for that right moment. And I know from working with my own crocodiles that I have that you turn every time I turn and look away they move a little bit closer. And then you look back and they sit there still and then you turn away and they move a little closer. They know exactly when you're not watching them and they'll take advantage of that. If you have dogs or small children, extra careful around the edges of fresh waters in Florida, brackish waters too. Uh, you want to give yourself a, a very big buffer zone. They see dogs as prey, you know, and, and if a dog's barking around their pond, a big male's going to say, this is my pond, and I'm going to let you know about that. So he'll come over and kill the dog just to let it know that this is his pond and his territory. My so. stupid golden retrievers will go up and try to play with it. Yeah. They'll be no, like, oh, what's yeah, this? I'm going to go swim and play with it. Yeah, they yeah. don't know any better. So it's really your responsibility as a pet owner to keep your dogs on a leash and keep them extra far away from fresh water sources. And if you have it on your property build a fence or in some cases you know if it's being aggressive you're going to have to have it removed or relocated depending on how big it is so yeah i have a couple friends that have had to get them removed from then and then they get it removed like somebody will come with a fishing rod and try to get it like that and then they'll end up eating it half the time because a lot of people like to eat them which is actually pretty interesting because both the snakes and the gators are eaten so there is kind of like a a use case at (laughs) least you're not just like Killing to kill it, you can actually use it, which I I like to see animals yeah get used. It'd be cool if the boars could kind of be in the same boat. Yeah, I heard that somebody was starting to do more of that with them, but uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's nearly as big as as something like alligators or so pythons. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that wouldn't want anything to do with eating that, but uh, you know, there is people that do, and it's on some menus here and there, and some odd restaurants here and there, but. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, definitely those are, are used for that and that purpose. Now, I always find it cool down in the Everglades, not cool necessarily, but very interesting that, you know, those are two apex predators and from the other side of the world that are meeting each other in the Everglades. And it's a very 
interesting thing to see that, uh, to see them compete and fight with each other down there. And there's documented many videos of them, you know, fighting with each other in some cases for hours, you know, rolling around and fighting with each other out there. So it's really neat to see that, but obviously very bad for the Everglades. Yeah. But I mean, it, if they both end up, you know, taking each other out, that helps the mammal species and the birds and the fish and <laughs> it does things and like that. You know, kind of needed a little bit. And makes for great movies. The the great alligator, <laughs> like if an alligator is like over seven to eight feet, they're at very little risk of a python killing them. It's all those little alligators that are the ones at risk, so it could eventually have more play more of a role in damaging their, you know. The good thing is the pythons, I don't think they'll ever move much further north from where they're at right now. Uh, they're going to stay kind of where they are. We haven't seen them move a whole lot from where they are, but it's going to damage South Florida significantly if they continue to. But even know, as they there. exhaust their food source, they're not going to just keep inching up because they're kind of taken out from what it's, I've seen, all the mammals and all yeah. the small animals and, like, it's not necessarily just, just the food, though, because it comes down to temperatures as well. And they get upper respiratory infections really easily, and their eggs can't do as well in the cooler temperatures because it gets significantly cooler some yeah. for weeks at a time in this area of Florida versus down in the Everglades. And so it's just that right place for them to thrive and do very well. So I just don't see them because we've had pythons. I mean, I get calls for pythons and other exotic snakes all the time in this area, not just, you know, Burmese pythons. They used to get, I actually just, uh, Burmese python in Palmetto, there, I just had a call for one a couple of weeks ago. It's in a ditch. Guy took a clear photo of it and showed me it's maybe an eight foot python in a ditch in Palmetto. And, and I told Fish and Wildlife and I went out searching, Greg and I went out searching for it together and we couldn't find it. It had been a day since the guy had seen it. And so, you know, we find them occasionally loose up here, but we haven't seen any establish themselves and mm -hmm. take hold. And I just don't see it happening just because it gets too cool up here. You know, you see a lot of stuff on History Channel, the news, they're like, they're going to be in, you know, the northern United States by 2040 or something like that. And it's just not going to happen. It's the just iguanas cool. have yeah. been down there for years yeah. and we don't get them up right. here. We don't yeah. get coconuts up here. It's weird how there's like this one line right kind of on the Everglades where things are different in yeah. South Florida. I consider it a different state anyways because South Florida is kind of it is. Sure feels it's lawless it does, down yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> so. it is. It's a different place, you know, especially the Miami area and Homestead. And Florida could be so. three different states. Like it the could Panhandle be. area, the North Central, Florida, and yeah. South. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely is a totally different place uh, down in Miami specifically in that whole region around it. Um, it's a lot of fun. And uh, we spent years going to the Everglades and capturing pythons, chameleons, all kinds of different stuff that you can find down there. It's, there's like no end to the exotic animals that you can find down in the Everglades. People tend to focus on the Burmese python because they get big and it makes for good news. But there's an amazing amount of different exotic species that are loose in South Florida. Not just there. We find a lot of exotics all the way up here that have actually established themselves. Tegu lizards, uh, spiny-tailed iguanas, um, you know, the green iguana, the, you know, all these different species that have, have continued mm. to expand and grow in numbers. They're a little hardier species that can withstand cooler temperatures than the Burmese python. So uh, people focus on it, but it's not our only problem. We got, yeah. and of course, pigs, like you said. You the know, pigs, yeah, those worry me because they're kind of pack animals. Same with yeah. the coyotes because the coyotes are smart. They'll be quiet when they have to yeah. be. They are. And then they start whimpering and you're like, is that a child out there? <laughs> like we've heard Let them back go out here. And look. <laughs> yeah, we got like power lines back by my behind my house yeah. and like you'll hear them sometimes uh, and like yeah. my wife's like that's like scary it's i hear like them howling like every night out in mayaka sure. i'm sure he does oh, too. I bet. And, you know we hear big groups of them howling out there i don't ever see them on my property pretty amazingly because i i butt right up to some heavily wooded area but i never see coyotes i see bobcats and 
you know, all the other stuff, but uh, yet to have seen a coyote on my actual property out there. I see them in town more than I do uh, out there. So I think it's just more land out there for them to run. And in town there, you know, you're going to run into them here. I've seen some crazy videos, too, of some, like, big crocodiles, like, waiting around in, like, some actual, like, in like uh, the keys, like in the water at the keys, and that's scary. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that that the keys has feet. American crocodiles. Uh, you know, typically the American crocodiles can get up to like 18, uh, 17, 18 feet. Typically, those are bigger bloodlines, like down in South uh, Central America, Southern Central America, stuff like that, and in, in Jamaica. But here in South Florida, I mean, like you see a sixteen footer or something like that, but a really big one. Um, but people are shocked; they don't realize they're in the keys, and they'll they'll be there vacation and one will just walk right up on the beach or into people's backyards even and sit there next to their pool and stuff. And they're a protected species. There's not that many of them. They're, uh, we're their most northern population is uh, in south the southern tip of Florida. So you can find them from the Keys wrapping around in both directions of the southern tip of Florida up to like Fort Myers and over the other side, same same north of Fort Lauderdale. But most of them are down in. And they're a little more they're a little more aggressive, a little bit more likely to kind of snap at something. Crocodiles overall are, but the American crocodile is not. Okay, they're they're kind of same. It's not like having saltwater crocodiles. No, those yeah, some crocodiles crocodiles are definitely way more aggressive than alligators. But I would put alligators and American crocodiles kind of at the same level as their you know, the big difference is, is that there's what, maybe 20,000 American crocodiles versus one and a half million American alligators. So there's zero deaths on record that I know of linked to an American crocodile in South Florida. There's been bites, but there's Mm -hmm. been no deaths that I know of, Uh, but there's only 20,000 and they're mostly in very rural areas of South Florida. So if they were as many as the American alligator, there'd probably be the same amount of deaths or bites and But attacks. the American crocodile, they're eating mullet. Yeah, they eat know, pretty they're, small. They're designed to eat fish and stuff. They're not designed Waiting to birds, stuff like that. Drag a zebra down into the... They do attack know, people's <laughs> dogs and stuff in the Keys sometimes. They'll yeah. go after dogs and stuff like that. There's one that for a while has been down there. They relocated it somewhere pretty far the last time they did, but it had, it had attacked... Well, actually, the dog swam across the canal to the crocodile, and it got attacked when it did that, and so... Yeah, there was a dog death this week. Yeah. Oh, was there? I didn't, I didn't Man, think I saw that. that's tough. I I've I've been lucky enough to go to Australia and see some of their captive mm-hmm. crocodiles, Huge. and they're big. Yeah, they're animals. the biggest. The saltwater or <laughs> nothing area, on that. <laughs> they can grow to a maximum of 21, 22 feet and over 2,000 pounds, so they get huge. And I've worked with some saltwater, but smaller ones, and they have horrible attitudes. And they're known man-eaters in Australia because they get big enough to see humans as prey, you know. And here in Florida, the alligator, their diet is turtles, fish, and wading birds for the most part. They might occasionally go after a bigger animal, but they almost have to be trained to see humans as food and that's why you know feeding them is so illegal and you get in trouble for it because you're teaching them you are food and you know they didn't know that necessarily before so um you know so but no saltwater crocodiles crazy hmm. compared and we're to we're not for several reasons we're not trappers we're not alligator trappers do rescue uh, injured alligators right. but we we've, we've been pulled in by the croc docs that manage the american crocodiles down there in in, in the glades uh, to help them capture some, do radio tag labeling and, and some DNA analysis for them. Uh, and we've been brought in by a lot of facilities that have big crocodiles and alligators, and they just want them moved or they want to clean an enclosure. Yeah. They call us in, and we've gone in and, uh, you know, Everglades Outpost, Everglades Alligator Farm. We go in, we raid the nests. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go in and we capture and move. You know, they had a lake down there. And it sounds like you're in a zoo, but... It's a fenced-in lake, 
And, uh, you know, I think we captured nine Nile crocodiles out of that one. Nile? Uh, yep. Uh, and recently, so we've had to move a lot of alligators for FWC when they raid at illegal alligator farms. Our record was we caught, captured alive, and transported and re-released 49 alligators in a day. Wow. That was our record. We had one where we did 19 in a day. But they were all like 10 foot plus. One was <laughs> yeah. like 13 feet. Yeah. And we're talking like 700 pounds. Enormous. So it Enormous. took our entire teams just to move one. Got forklift for yeah. it. And you're so walking through the water up to your, up to your waist feeling for an alligator. I have, I have video feet. of me. Uh, we, were, we were like noodling like you do for catfish. Yeah. We're in this nasty pond and stagnant water walking around up to our waist and chest. And... And we got to the point where it was hard because they knew we were trying to capture them. So they're all staying deep under and sliding around. And so um, we were feeling around and I just was I was trying to grab for a tail. And there's a video of me. I reached down to uh, grab the tail and I thought I grabbed the tail and I actually grabbed it right by the front of its jaws and pulled it out of the water. And and, did it right up to it. And I did. And I told them to grab the noose. I was holding on to it. It was and they grabbed the noose and noosed it quick right out of my hand. And we dragged out. It was like a 10 foot alligator, maybe nine. Holy crap. And they'll just drown you if that like that's that's kind of their move is just to drown or roll a person. Yeah, death roll you and like just disorient you. But when you have to capture that many, you know, our whole idea was we feel them with our feet. One person goes down underwater. If you're gentle with him, it and works a lot easier. And you can gently, slowly lift. An alligator that weighs hundreds of pounds yeah. on land in the water, you can gently and slowly lift that monster up right to the surface. Then you have a couple split seconds before he erupts. So in that little moment that we bring him up to the surface... Yeah, the other one has to jump in and get a noose around its neck. And do you do anything first? Like, do you heavily feed them or something to try to get them like maybe? Most calm cases, we don't have the ability to when we come to these types of situations because you know we have a certain amount of time we're allowed to be there and get there. Right. And actually, we typically don't feed at all. We don't want them to feed. We want them to be hungry because you can bait them sometimes. Put a you know okay, piece of chicken sense. on a string just to get them to hold on to something and pull them up. And, you know, when you pull them up, noose them. And so, you know, keep them hungry if you can, if you're trying to capture them. But, uh, it, yeah, it can be difficult because sometimes they'll have tunnels that go under the edges of the, you know, banks and stuff. And they go in there and it's a lost cause unless you're willing to swim inside the tunnel, which we've had some guys do that. Well, it was funny because in like, what, 2000, <laughs> probably nine or 10, it became like mainstream where there was like Gator Boys on TV was like every TV across the country yeah. was mm-hmm. watching that at the time. And yeah. it was like Florida Everglades were like, yeah. Or wherever they were, they maybe yeah they were down there just yeah. outside of Miami. Yeah, because yeah, that was a big show at the time, and it's it kind of funny. There was like a yeah, surge those guys of it. are the real deal. They they know what they're doing. You know, uh, Chris Gillette, Paul, and um, uh, can't think of his name right now, but they um, they absolutely know what they're doing, and and um, you know it's very realistic to the lifestyle down there of of a lot of those people, and we know a lot of those people down there that live that lifestyle and it was it wasn't just for tv that's how they live every day down there catching alligators and crocodiles and snakes and anything else they can find not fake no it's not at all we've done a lot of it ourselves down there and that's just kind of that florida man lifestyle down there you know so yeah that's funny that it's like because a lot of the times you see that and you're like oh they planted that stuff there there might be some (laughs) stuff occasionally planted but i'm telling you like south florida i've had people film with me before film crews come from places and they're like we're going to schedule to do this here, this here. It's like, I'm telling you, you don't need to. We can find enough interesting things without having to, like, you know, plant a snake or something like that. And it always works out. There's enough animals down here that you can find something to do. So Yeah, that's interesting. The the 
that always like worried me as the crocodiles because I've seen them in Australia and like I think oh a crocodile like it's a twenty eight foot long <laughs> killing machine yeah. that yeah I've seen like placid I know this yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly but the one that I saw in captivity when I was in it was Sydney Zoo in Australia it was this thing was massive yeah, and we got huge. we were lucky we got behind the scenes feeding of it and mm. like. Got to hold the thing, and it jumped to where its tail was, like, the only thing touching in us. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, this thing is not just some 800-pound immobile item. He's yeah. a probably 1,000-pound. If we had those in Florida instead of the alligator, people would be dying every week. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just they're, – uh, they're definitely a much more fierce and aggressive species of crocodile. And, um, you know, but it still comes down to just – you got to have some common sense around the waters, you know, yeah. and uh, a lot of deaths there that happen. It's in no swimming areas because of crocodiles. They have signs there and, you know, they're fast. Those things are so fast. And the power in those jaws, I think the highest tested pressure in one of their jaws, and it wasn't even full grown, was like 36 or 3,700 pounds of pressure per square inch. So, I mean, you're talking like cars dropping on you with teeth and, yeah. you know, that's that's an amazing force. And that's just the bite. The thrashing, they can literally grab a human and just tear them in half by thrashing mm-hmm. with that amount of power in their neck and stuff like that. So uh, it is a killing machine that's evolved for, you know, millions of years or hundreds yeah. of thousands. And it's it's uh, that's what it's designed for. So, you know, but they are not stupid animals. And I, I prove this all the time with my crocodile. I have a nine foot West African crocodile. I actually have a new one uh, female being introduced next week. And my crocodile, Ra, is quite well known because he's so friendly and laid back. Now, when it comes to feeding time, he turns into a different animal sometimes. If he's hungry, he'll run out chasing me, jumping through the air, clapping his jaws. But I can also sit on his back. I can pet him right on the top of his head on his eyes and right along his snout. And I've had him for, what, 10 years? And yeah, 10 years ago, he wasn't like that. 10 years ago, no, he wanted yeah. to kill us. We pulled him out of a <laughs> pond, and he was totally wild. And we, at the time, we had taken in eight other crocodiles, and... He stood out to me out of the group as being slightly less aggressive. He was more passive and didn't want to fight. And so I took him and I um, I spent more time working with him. And they're highly intelligent. They have long-term memory. You can teach them voice and hand commands uh, and all kinds of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they're still a very dangerous animal. And if you make a mistake around them, you know, you can easily lose a hand or an arm. And, you know, but if you look also, like, people are always like, you're going to die doing that. You're going to die doing that. I, as a crocodile keeper and somebody works with them can't name a single person that works with them in captivity that's actually been killed in the united states working with crocodiles yeah, it's always some older so, person walking their dog yeah or exactly something, or, so you know the people that work with them not at risk a lot of times they're so well fed in captivity they yeah. didn't even if they do attack you they don't have like the motivation to totally tear you apart and eat you because mm-hmm. you know it's more just about uh just uh dominance or, you know, just because they mistook your hand for food or something like that. I'm going to pause you for one second. Yeah. got to pee. Good. been dry this this year, too. Yeah, it has. It's, it's really sucked. Well, I, it's good and bad because, it, like, that humidity does act, add an extra, like, heat feel to it. And mm-hmm. But, you know, either way, this summer has been the worst summer of my time doing tours with people. Like, I get so many, it's just too hot out and people are like, you know, they don't want to stay for the entire thing and see all the animals because it's just too hot to sit out in that. So Yeah, that makes shade. sense. Even if you're on, like, a farm with some nice trees and yeah, stuff, it's still just too much. we got shade and we got much. some fans, and they're just like, no, nah, it's got to get back on the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I got I a pregnant them. wife right now, and she's like, I don't want to do anything outside. No, I'm like, I, all right, let's sit here and watch TV. <laughs> yeah, I just had a daughter and my wife, and, like, 
she we can't go outside in the daytime you know she's six months old and it's like it's just too hot so and then in the you go out in the evening and out in Mayak it's like swarmed by mosquitoes everywhere as soon as mm-hmm. you step outside and it's like I don't need that so either. you guys are pretty close with FWC then I've been to the dump over here quite a few times and there's always bald eagles there if I've released one, quite a few there myself <laughs> if one you know just happened to want to stay at my house would they be mad if like if suddenly there was just a bald eagle that was like oh living in your treetop or something would they be like no it has to be at the dump no no they they don't control that at all and actually <laughs> if one accidentally made it here and i didn't i didn't keep it in a cage or anything it just yeah. there was some fish and stuff you know, the around the dump has a unique spot where, where there's a big hillside and we had permission, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, we had permission to go in there to do a release. And we actually had to climb the fence after hours, hand the bald eagle over the fence. You know, I had to climb up like halfway, yeah. hand the bald eagle over to Damon. And we went up onto that hillside, unwrapped it. And that's a great hill to do a flight check to make sure that, you know, it's mm-hmm. swooped down and I, off. It I always get a kick out of it because people are like, oh, man, like I saw a bald eagle like up in the Pacific Northwest yeah. or something. I'm like, yeah, you just like 30 of them here. <laughs> you go spend 10 bucks, dump off some trash and you can take oh, all yeah, the photos no. and videos you want. There's yeah, plenty of uh, food for them. Every time photographers ask me, where can I get a picture of bald eagle? I say the dump and they think I'm joking. I'm like, no, the dump's <laughs> the best place. Every county along the coastline that has a dump has eagles all over the place. There's tons of rats because there's trash yeah. and, and there's usually ponds there with fish and you know it's just a great place for them but no if you if if you're like feeding the eagles to try and get them to stay at your property fwc might take issue with that but you're not going to just attract eagles anyways you'll end up with every animal in the neighborhood coming over to your house but i'm okay with that no yeah (laughs) no if if an eagle just makes a home at your house and hangs out there there's nothing against that and um you know eagles now there's there's a lot more of them than there used to be i when i started working with wildlife back in 2004 they were still on the endangered species list they're now still protected um, but they're not endangered. And uh, the first bald eagle I rescued was they were still on the endangered list. And um, then after that, it switched over. So I always like to note that that I helped get them off the endangered nice. species list. That was my so one rescue. Yeah, yeah. For it. No, but uh, I have applause for that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've rescued I've rescued probably forty or fifty bald eagles now over the years, That's and cool. it never is not exciting to get that call. They're such a magnificent bird when you see them. Like, the, you know, they're so much bigger in person when you yeah. get close to them. So uh, a lot of them are juveniles that I get calls for, but I get quite a few adults over the years. And and they're just so cool. And it's uh, nothing like rescuing them and getting a photo holding a bald eagle, you know. I mean, so, because of that. park collisions. America. <laughs> we get a lot of eagles, a lot of hawks, and a lot of owls okay. all the time. With Those are actually my most eyes. common calls uh, is yeah. owls. I get a lot of late-night calls for owls out in Mayaka. People hit them while they're driving. One thing that I have found fascinating is, you know, they all these birds have hollow bones, right? We've had we've had some of these raptors with broken wings, where it looks like you took a drumstick and you snapped it in half, and this broken broken bone sticking out like this. And Damon and I stick them together, wash them with saline, wrap it up, and then a few weeks later, we're throwing that bird up in the sky and it's flying away. Wow! So they're really that good. Literally at amazing how quickly back. those bones. Mend. Yeah, birds' bones heal very yeah. fast compared to mammals' bones, so it takes no you know, density weeks. really. Yeah. Yeah. So just that our side, and you know, so um, we've successfully released a lot of back to the wild over the years. When I worked with, uh, I still am part of Wildlife Inc., which is another wildlife rescue and rehab facility, and and we've rehabbed many over the years and been able to release them back to the wild. But uh, unfortunately, you know, every once you get one that can't make it and so we do our best to find them homes in captivity when we so can. i have a 
weird one then. I have a really good friend that owns the racetrack out in Bradenton, the mm-hmm. Freedom Factory. Yeah. Definitely how, know of it. <laughs> how can it become yeah. a place where there may be some bald eagles? If if it could be set up somehow with... So there would be a couple things that you'd want to do. Is One is get some ponds and stock them with fish. I okay. mean, fish are a big part of their diet, and they love them. Uh, same with rabbits. They love rabbits as well, and there's tons of rabbits probably out they there. They reproduce anyways. real quick. Yeah. yeah. Build a nesting platform. Yeah, nesting platforms you can build uh, out there. And, and I would say try and do them closer to you know trees and stuff like that so they feel like they're right there near the trees. You might end up getting a lot of osprey, too. Um, you're not far from Lake Manatee there, and so there's there's eagles right already it, yeah. out there. I've released eagles many times out at Lake Manatee as well, and so uh, it wouldn't take much to entice some bald eagles. That would be really cool. Like it would be cool, yeah. It would be a benefit for the eagles, the local wildlife, yeah. and then also it would just be a really cool, like, you could go there and yeah. see an eagle that's you should maybe, living. Uh, you know, I don't. You said you know him. You should maybe consider getting a falconer to come out and fly an eagle there because some falconers do keep eagles and mm-hmm. uh, just for like the beginning of a show or something like that. Yeah. When you guys are doing a race, um, you know, before all the loud noises and all that, just have them come out and fly one just for everybody to see. And we had one and once for an event, but it was very skittish. It was a little like. Yeah, it depends on whether they've been raised from a young age and stuff. Yeah, so, and the falconry ones that can still fly, that's kind of cool because they can get out there and fly. But, yeah, I've worked with quite a few in captivity, and some of them are really calm. Some of them are just really jumpy, just depending on how old they were when they came in and things like that. Every time we talk about bald eagles, there's going to be the um, obligatory Australian that comments telling me how much better his birds are in Australia (laughs) than ours. They do have a lot of really cool birds there, you know. They have all kinds of cool wildlife. They got all the cool wildlife, for sure. The most dangerous wildlife in the world. And, uh, you know, there's no question that got cool stuff, but the bald eagle is just a really cool bird. I mean, it's just iconic. And, you know, that white head, and uh, it just, to me, um, not a lot beats it. Maybe uh, like Philippine eagles or, you know, stellar sea eagles, some of the other ones out there. Uh, we got a lot of the, uh, I think they're the Cooper Hawks around here. Yeah. They're really good looking birds, birds and, and they, they swoop down constantly and and stuff like in that. front of my car. Yeah. Yeah. Red shoulders are the most common one you see. Those are the ones that are really talkative. They, they're always screaming about something. Uh, those are the ones I get called to rescue most, uh, a lot hit by cars. Uh, but Cooper's hawks, sharp shin hawks, um, you know, we get all kinds of different stuff and we have few different owl species in this area. I've had an owl one morning I walk out, it was up in the tree kind of just looking at me. Like yeah. I could tell this thing was way smarter than anything <laughs> else has been in my yard because he's just kind of watching me like turning his head like very quiet, didn't fly away, nothing like they know that they it. know that they're camouflaged too, and in most cases, most people just don't notice them. So they just sit quietly watching you and and think they'll never see me. And they are almost completely silent when they fly too, so you mm-hmm. don't even hear them when they take off and fly away or anything like that. So they're a really cool animal. I've worked in this area. We have uh, burrowing owls, barred owls, uh, great horned owls, eastern screech owls, and my barn mm-hmm. owls. I'm, forgetting them so yeah. i've rescued all those we get almost every species every year the burrowing owl isn't as common in this area but i usually get one every other year or so rescue call for one of those and they're really cool such a cool species guys. i yeah. love how much wildlife we have in florida one of yeah. the other ones that always scare me though for like waterways is those big 
the alligator tortoises is what they call them the snapping turtles snapping that turtles. are like the head is like this big and their mouth can like bite a watermelon those ones yeah. freak me out a so little bit our, more our true alligator snapping turtles are found in north florida we do have snapping turtles in south florida and they get big they can get 50 pounds or so they get huge um those are the common ones uh but the alligator snapping turtle we have a friend robbie kezzy from the swamp brothers tv show i don't know if you remember that it was mm-hmm. on for a long time really cool guy but he's got one that's it's got to be like 150 pounds he, or said, something he like. says 170. Yeah, so 170. We have pictures holding it, and you have to, like, rest it on your leg while you're holding because it it's just so heavy. It shells this big. You're holding it like this. The head on that thing is that big. I mean, I it's know, huge. I don't have to rest it on my leg. Yeah, whatever. And, uh, so, <laughs> but uh, no problem. Yeah. No sweat. But, no, but, I mean, it, it's it, it's an amazing animal. You can find them now up, and they're finding more in the Suwannee River and uh, some places a little more south than their, they initially thought their range was. And those are a protected species here in Florida. You have to get a license to have one as a pet. And um, But uh, I've had them before. We've had them rescued because people have brought them from North Florida. They found one in a road or something and brought them all the way down to South Florida. But then you got to take them all the way back up north to release them when they need to be released back. To Interesting. Wild. So they do like a little bit colder of a climate then? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you can actually see them. Like there's videos of them swimming under the ice up in like, you know, what is it, Louisiana and stuff Oh, wow, like they that. make it pretty and, far know, then. So, huh. But, That's pretty uh, crazy. They're really cool. But the snapping turtles in general can all survive but in cold temperatures. But the alligator snapping turtle is the largest freshwater turtle we have in the United States. And uh, they can get over 200 pounds. They get huge. And uh, they That's live a very long time. It's <laughs> a so, big animal. Yeah, it is. They're awesome. And uh, they have a major, like, powerful bite on them. So they can do some real They damage. look more prehistoric they than do. even gators do. They do, yeah. Like, they look like an animal that shouldn't exist now <laughs> yeah because they have that like front fang that yeah. kind of is just like they're yeah. a menacing looking animal they yeah. get like algae built up on them that yeah. make them look like they're a thousand years old <laughs> they're cool and they're they're pretty easy to handle though if you hold them in the right way that it's physically impossible for them to bite you or anything mm-hmm. so like once you figure out how to handle it's just you know the big thing is they're how heavy they are you know so Do you guys have any information on like what's kind of going on with um lake okeechobee because i've seen some of that and it's it's sad looking and more it's, and more algal blooms and more and more spraying of herbicides yeah, yeah. that's kind of what it is right they're just yeah. they're trying to kill what's around the they're trying to you kill got, you would know. water lettuce and uh hyacinth primarily uh but they subcontract to sprayers that get paid based on the amount of spray that they spray oh. so they go out and they start spraying they turn on the nozzle and they go so there's a lot of you know the clean water movement is that has been after them for over a decade now uh because we're, you really it's it's actually illegal to use those herbicides on the water so who's paying them the government then Florida uh, I don't know the answer to that yeah I know, okay I know FWC contracts at all and uh, that Florida is actually spraying more gallons of several of those herbicides than all the other states combined Man, it makes me so sad to see those photos of the algae bloom and it's like horrible. gators trying to wade through this, and yeah, they just. It's horrible. Oh, man, it's such a sad because that's like our biggest waterway in Florida. Yeah, right? and it, it kills a lot of wildlife every year, and a lot of plant life, and all that, and you know, not just the algae, but then the chemicals all sprayed too. It's killing wildlife. It's just, uh, it's a huge problem. And um, I've yeah. heard some of it is like runoff from farms too is also not mm-hmm. helping. But then you're saying that they spray. Tens of yeah. thousands of and, gallons. But because of, we're close to nature, you know, we kind of, all, all these groups like the clean water movement, you know, they're interested in all the animals and we're interested in a clean environment. So everybody kind of overlaps a little bit and knows a little bit what everybody else is doing. 
Yeah. I, I'd love to hear more about that from someone that may be really. Yep. And there's several groups really of expert on it. that, uh, you know, the type of captain that take people out freshwater fishing, uh, bass fishing primarily. Uh, there's a lot of those groups that are forming together to try to document citizen science wise what they're seeing with regards to the spraying because the FWC commissioners are developers and they hear from the FWC biologists, we should spray, they spray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people that are out there on the water every day, they're the ones seeing the devastation, the, the bird's nests that are getting sprayed, the dead fish, the lack of uh, all the inverts and all the other animals that are getting killed by the spray. Yeah, I'm sure it's it. ruining even tourism around there and, like, people that want to live around there. And, like, sure. the impact on that alone is is huge, too, is because if you can get tourism, then you can have funding to kind of clean this stuff and make it good. So tourism off, like... I think people always give tourism a bad name, but it can actually help a lot of... But I think tourists around the world were looking last year and seeing the satellite images of Florida spewing stuff out both sides and red tide blooms everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that too, the red tide stuff. Red tide is devastating. Like when I started working with wildlife in 2004, I worked at a place called Pelican Man's Bird Sanctuary in the Wildlife Hospital there, and it no longer exists. It's now Save Our Seabird Sanctuary in Sarasota. That's what it turned into. But at the time when I worked in the wildlife <laughs> hospital, we had one of the worst uh, red tide blooms at the time. And we were getting in sometimes like 50 birds a day that were dying from red tide poisoning. And then next door is Moat and our veterinarian worked at Moat as well. And they were getting manatees, dolphins, all these different animals that were dying from the red tide as well. And it's just uh, it's crazy how much damage it does and, and uh, sets us back. You know, you have all these efforts where they dump money into conservation for certain animals like <clears throat> manatees and stuff like that. And then something like this sets everything back again, you know. Um, so it's it's definitely a problem that needs to be dealt with. My worry is too deeper. it always feels like government programs that try to help end up actually hurting, <laughs> which I always have said about, you know, government <laughs> everything. in general <laughs> yeah. is like when you try, like, just leave it alone yeah. and it'll probably be better. They have their place, but I think there's, there's you know, you got to maybe not allow, you know, the full impact of the government to do things, you know, it's okay to help out a little bit here, but when the, mm-hmm. when they get fully involved like that, sometimes it, uh, it definitely has a negative impact rather than a positive and one. I think more often the thing that we see that's so difficult is speaking broadly. A lot of those government groups, they have the power to make the changes, but not necessarily the background to you know, they might have some researchers on a topic. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily act based on what science says. What science and the, the 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 common man out there is seeing. Yeah, there's a lot of red tape involved. And then if you, yeah. like, this will fix it, and then it's a 10-step program, and you do five steps. Yeah. And then you're worse off because you only did half of what you should have been doing. Yep. We know this uh, very well from dealing with fish and wildlife over uh, a lot of exotic species of animals. Now, you know, me as somebody, I was an invasive species first responder for fish and wildlife voluntarily for for years, and I've worked heavily removing invasive species from the wild, but they have their agenda of what they want to do with exotics in Florida. They want to essentially ban almost every exotic animal as pets here in Florida, and I'm not for that. As somebody who's seen the impact and what devastation it can have, 
I also believe this is America and people should have a path to some sort of freedom of keeping exotic pets. Now, I'm not against people having licenses to have animals, uh, you know, but don't make it so impossible to get that license that basically only a million dollar facility can have that license because they meet all the requirements. My worry is the word exotic animal can be interpreted Mm -hmm. differently. You know, you make a rule, no exotic animals. Five years later, suddenly this animal and this animal are exotic animals. And then suddenly your cat is an exotic animal. And then it's a it's kind of weird when you use very inclusive language. Yeah, and I think that's a huge problem, too, because, you know, the reptile community, the bird community, they're kind of separate. And um, those are mostly exotic animals that people keep. And, you know, they don't always talk to each other and get on the same page or tropical fish as well. That's becoming a problem too. Now they're trying to, you know, go to regulate them as well. And so what we can't get across is over to those cat and dog people and realizing that it won't be long until, you know, they may possibly determine that, you know, they want to start regulating your dogs and cats and stuff like that. Now fish and wildlife doesn't really hold the power for that, but the government does if they want to, you know, possibly USDA. USDA just announced that they're, I have a permit for them for mammals. They inspect for, if you have mammals on display and they just announced they're now getting into birds. If you have a bird at all, that's on display at all, you're going to have to have a license through the USDA if you're exhibiting it to the public or anything like that. And so they're just slowly taking steps towards putting licenses in place and taking away people's freedom to own some of these animals or to, you know, bring them out in public or talk about them. And so I think some way we need to bridge that gap and get to the people that only keep, you know, the more domesticated animals like dogs and cats, because right now it's just not as mainstream. It's not known as mainstream right now that they're doing this. They're taking slow steps towards that. And we don't want to get to that point. It's a small hammer, yeah. you chip away at it. And right now the dog little. and cat people are looking at it and say, oh, well, you probably shouldn't own a snake or you shouldn't own a pet iguana or whatever. But, But you know, wait until it's your pet. I mean, these people that have a pet iguana or a pet a snake, they feel just the way they you do about your pet dog or cat. And you're saying that it's, you know, you shouldn't have that. But what if somebody came into your house and said, you're not allowed to have this anymore? That pit bull is probably more dangerous than somebody owning a snake. Yeah, no. And and pit bulls are an example right there. They try to control those in some counties. They don't let people own them and stuff. And and yes, their jaw power is strong. But in most cases, it just comes down to bad owners that don't Mm -hmm. properly, you know, keep their their pit bull. But, you know, that's one example of right there. You know, they're trying to regulate that in some places that you can't keep this. And then insurance companies say, you can't keep this dog at your house. You know, and so I think a lot of people don't understand since we're on U.S. Fish and Wildlife and FWC. I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, certainly when I was a kid, I would have thought that that's who takes care of the wild animals. Right. Well, it's not, you know, in the in the state of Florida, we are a wildlife rescue. We do everything. We don't get any we don't get any money from from the cities that we work with, the counties that we work with, the state. And the state does not take care of the wildlife. So when you when you have an injured animal that falls out of the sky or you hit with your car, the first the first thing a lot of people think of is, oh, call FWC. FWC won't respond to that. Uh, they'll refer you to a rescue like they'll, ours. They'll refer the person to us. Mm-hmm. And then we have to go out. What FWC and U.S. Fish and Wildlife really do is police people like us. And they make stricter and stricter and stricter regulations a lot of which is based on non-stakeholder input. You have uh, people like PETA that are extremely powerful. They're always pushing and pushing and pushing that would like to see 
no wildlife rescue in some ways yeah. because that's interfering. Or, or hey, you know, those animals are in too small a cage. We're a wildlife rescue that depends completely on donations. So we don't have a lot of money. We don't have money for a big, the big type of fancy cage you might see in a zoo. We have room for a dog carrier or, or, or the finances to build a small cage every now and then. Um, and we, there's always that push, oh, your cages should be bigger. They hear that often enough, suddenly we have to build bigger cages. We don't have the money for that or we have to put money towards that. That's less money that we can put towards the rescues. And what we try to put all of our money towards is the rescues, towards, you know, when you have an animal with a broken wing, even with just food, for, for the course of a month or two, it might be a couple hundred dollars. And, and frequently, you know, people, people that could be donating to us might give us $10 every now and then. That's rough. You know, an animal that we, that we rehab to release always is going to cost us hundreds of dollars. We have the gas to do the to the, do the rescue, our tools that we're constantly buying, food for those yeah, you're animals. They're all crowdfunded. Veterinary yeah. bills. Um, and we're lucky. We're really fortunate. That we have several good local veterinarians that mm-hmm. work with us either on the cheap or do some stuff for free, or we simply couldn't do it. So um, FWC wants you to do your job and at the same time make it harder to do your job. Exactly. They do. That's exactly. They're playing both sides of this. I want to say something here. too because I I don't want to talk too badly about FWC because I actually love a lot of the officers and my inspectors who come to inspect me are really great guys and and you know it just comes from the top, you know, and there's decision makers up there and they have to enforce and do their job. And so I have nothing against the officers. I think they're great. And in many cases, they'll go out and rescue animals for me if I need them to. In some cases, you know, deal with alligators and stuff like that. And But it's definitely from the top, the decisions are, you know, being made. And a lot of it has more to do with, you know, political stuff than it does and looking good uh, than it does with pure science and what makes sense. And, and, they're just not taking into consideration, like I said, freedoms, you know, that uh, living here in the United States, we're supposed to be free to a degree. And, you know, I think part of that is being able to be happy owning an exotic animal. And like I said, I'm okay with a, a path to getting to that, having to have a license or something, but make it, you know, attainable, something that you can actually, you know, the average person can do if they really feel strongly about that. I mean, yeah. you got biology teachers and stuff like that who want to keep certain exotic animals to do education and things like that. And they're making it so you have to have strict licensing and bonds and all kinds of stuff to yeah. to be able to have that animal. And the caging requirements are almost impossible to meet in some cases. Very and FWC close. commissioners are appointed by the governor. Yeah. Okay. And in Florida, our FWC commissioners are developers. Yeah. Okay, so, so it's basically like you're saying, good people getting involved in a bad or a somewhat bad organization that doesn't always have the best interests of the wildlife in mind, like yeah. we would imagine. Like you're probably the average person sitting there listening to this thinks FWC, they got the best interest of all the wildlife in Florida, and for there's the most part, you guys involved, have like the best Like everything interest. else, there's politics right. involved, and so overall, yes, the officers do amazing work, and they're out there busting people that are poaching. You know, we just saw here in Manatee County uh, taking a lot of sea life, uh, marine life, people that were poaching and things like that. I know a lot of the officers, and they're just awesome guys, and they really care about wildlife and what they're doing. Um, but again, it comes from decision makers up at the very top, and um, you know, it's it's caused people like me 
who are trying to rescue and do good work, a lot of trouble to do what I do. I got involved with like, you know, I got all my licenses for pythons and stuff like that and all these exotic animals because I wanted to rescue them. And then they slowly made it so it was impossible to rescue them. Now your only option is to kill them. And not every case is a kill case. You know, you get a, let's say somebody brought a pet python in illegally, some really rare one, maybe like some albino or some weird morph of a python. They brought it in the state illegally. It gets loose from their home I get called to capture it because it's loose and that's who people call. When I get there, my option now is to kill that python or call Fish and Wildlife so they can come and kill it. Even though it's friendly and it's a rare morph that's, you know, potentially in the pet trade outside of Florida be worth even thousands of dollars or something, it has to be euthanized. There's no way around it. They will euthanize it every time and they claim they're going to do studies on it to see what it's been eating in the wild mm-hmm. and it's like it's a pet that just got loose and in most cases they find a white rat inside of it because it reptiles get a bum it. rap too, so yeah. they don't really have that recognition as pets by yeah. a lot of by They're a lot not of the people. cute fuzzy animals. Animals, right. So people just don't have that same attachment. Yeah. And it's they're not going to find an out of state dog and just immediately euthanize it. Yeah. Isn't right. that crazy, though? Because like your neighbor will be anti you having your animal. And like, you know, I I may not agree with stuff, but I like to right. fight for people's right to do it. Yeah. You know, like, well, that's we, it. We saw a lot of sad stories when they changed the rules on uh, green iguanas. So oh, there yeah. were a lot of kids Seizing all around, children all around the state that were that had you know that little tiny pet cute pet iguana, and they live a long time. They grow, and a lot of people you know that got a little baby iguana when they were a kid. Thirty years later, that iguana lives in their living room. Yeah. There, there was that. There was that all over the state of Florida. It's all around the country. They really. were seizing. My inspectors had told me they were seizing from little kids. You know, yeah, they were taking little kids little pulling kids on pets. their pants, saying, "No, please don't yeah, take my and, lizard. And, uh, please don't take my pet." They don't want to be doing that. You know, and they're it's seizing strong. and euthanizing them all. And I get that iguanas are an issue in certain parts of Florida. They definitely are, but. When you look at the impact they have, it's it's exaggerated heavily. The, oh, there's salmonella everywhere from iguanas because they poo in the water. Please name me a single case of somebody getting salmonella <laughs> from an iguana when they swam in the water. I don't know of any. Yeah. And then the other ones is they poo in people's swimming pools. They eat people's flowers around their homes. And they sometimes dig next to seawalls. Those are the main complaints of iguanas. Fall out of trees it's when like, it's cold. Yes, and the Keys, they're everywhere. They're all over the place, and it is a huge problem down there. But when you're talking the rest of Florida, it's not that big of an issue. We do find them in this county along the coastline, but there's not not an excessive (laughs) amount of them. Maybe there will be eventually. I don't know, but they just... They don't have the impact of a Burmese python. You know, Burmese python are, you know, eating native wildlife. Killing machines. The green iguana, 95% plant life is what it's eating. It's eating flowers and, you know, it's Do they have any predators? Yeah, I mean, when they're young, birds, everything will eat Mm -hmm. them. Uh, Alligators will eat them when they're adults. Crocodiles in South Florida have been seen eating them before and... Uh, even bobcats and stuff like that. So almost anything will eat them. uh, What about like some exotic birds? Like how has that been changing? Because I've been, I was at a bar once and it was just down on like Fruville and a guy had a a parrot that was sitting there chain smoking and it was like, it was smoking (laughs) cigarettes, hanging out with him. Like, Now, that's, that's yeah. maybe going a little too far there. But, uh, you know, as far as parrots go, uh, now they're changing. Now, the guy who just comes down to the bar with his parrot, his pet parrot, they're probably not going to require a license for that. But somebody who is is displaying a parrot to make money off of it or to exhibit it for educational purposes, if you're doing it on a daily basis, they're going to require a license now from USDA. They'll require veterinarian, um, you know, uh, records and all this different stuff will be required with it. You'll get inspected twice 
a year typically. And so all that just to have a, pa a parrot on display, which are very commonly sold in the pet trade. And you can privately own one and you don't have to have a license, but the minute you're showing it to the public, you now have to have a license for it. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's really necessary. We already have a license. Technically, if you have a parrot on display, you have to have a license through FWC anyways. And this is another problem. We have U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Florida Fish and Wildlife, and USDA are all inspecting us, and they require different things. And sometimes they contradict each other and don't make any sense, like heights of fences and stuff like that. One says it only has to be this high, the other one has to be this high. And so it's like, how many people do we really need inspecting us? And why can't we consolidate that all into one? Isn't this a huge waste of government money and, and resources they that like we have three that. different organizations <laughs> inspecting us when one person could do it and we could just hit all those marks? So. Those are other issues. Though. They like to waste a little money. Why not? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> tell me about, like, I mean, you already went into it a little bit. Like, you guys obviously run on donations. And if people care about animals and rescuing them, you guys are probably one of probably many or few people that can actually take donations mm -hmm. and directly have impact. Because mm -hmm. if you give money to PETA, they're just going to kill some dogs with it. They're not going to really help you that much. But you guys have like an actual direct impact. <laughs> I didn't impact. say that, Peta. Don't attack me. <laughs> I said it 100% because they. And we do. There's been plenty of stories of that. No, I, I, I know. If I could say something to everybody, it would be make donations to the small, the small nonprofits around you that are. They definitely have more of an impact. It makes a huge impact. You know, $100 to the Salvation Army goes towards the CEO's yeah. pay, right? $100 to us goes a long way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it does get directly used, I mean, uh, especially for us. We're a very small not-for-profit. I mean, we started a few years ago. I was the vice president. I still am vice president of the other Wildlife, Inc., which is a bigger, and they've been open for over 30 years. And, um, you know, they're still considered small, and we're, like, tiny next to them. And so, um, but we're just starting out, and I still work closely with them, and, you know, um, but those donations go directly for paying for rescue operations of animals and veterinarian bills and things like that, building cages for animals that need homes permanently because they're disabled. Um, but, yeah, we survive solely on donations. And as of right now, I don't take a paycheck, and neither does Greg. He's the vice president. I'm the president. And we have some volunteers. Nobody gets paid. I I honestly, as we talked about Mixon, I was working there for 13 years. They employed me to do the tours there, but it was my not-for-profit and Wildlife, Inc. there. And so the funding I got was through donations from the public to pay for animal care and all that. My paycheck, which was never really that big from there, it ended, you know, last week because they're selling that farm. And so now I'm... I don't actually have a job, but I'm still going to work every day taking care of animals <laughs> and I'm still rescuing animals every day. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to make this work? So we're, we're hoping I can get to the point where I can start, you know, eventually paying myself to do that. I'm not talking a lot, but yeah. to get by, but right to now, live, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm still, I'm still doing it. And, uh, you know, that money is all going back into rescues and, and just yesterday I had a snake call and, and, um, a rescue for a raccoon. I got to do a raccoon right after. And this now the farm isn't really like a lot of things locally like that are closing because they're like, oh, we want to put 90 houses on this property. What's what's the deal with the farm? Is it so mix and fruit farm? I'll just go through like brief history and where we're at right now. Uh, mix and fruit farms has been around for 84 years. And uh, the current owners, which are the would be the grandson of the original owners, um, 
Dean Mixon and Janet Mixon, they've decided that they want to retire and, and more power to them. You know, they have every right to and and they're selling that land. And it's about 40 acres in in almost West Bradenton. It's one of the most one of the last little farms in yeah. West Bradenton and that's been around forever. And so there's they want to sell the land, but they don't really want to see it go to developers. They want to see it go to something else because all that land around there is completely developed just over the past few years. Developers have bought every little piece of land around there, and they're developing it, putting tons of houses in, no yards, just like all houses. And and they know, first of all, for them, it's just the the memories of the place. They don't want to see it go completely. They would like to have it memorialized some way. And then uh, for me, working out there for 13 years, I've seen all the wildlife that's there, and it's it's going to be devastating for me to see all these animals that I know are going to lose that space and place to live when they if they develop there. So developers are knocking at their door, but the county wants to buy that land and turn it in. Well, County Parks wants to buy that land, purchase it and make it a county park. And they want to turn that 40 acres into biking and walking trails and replant native uh, Florida plant life. They want to keep some of the bamboo and orange trees and all that stuff to kind of you know, remember mixing so fruit that's farms. Best case scenario. That's the best case scenario, and that's where they're at right now. They want to do that, uh, but it's next week. I believe it's the seventh or eighth that the commission is voting on. Uh, the county commissioners are voting on potentially funding that purchase. Uh, they're getting funding from other areas, so the full funding isn't uh, from just the county. It's grants and stuff right. like that. City of Bradenton is very. City of Bradenton is getting involved, and, and grant money that's going toward it that stipulates working with wildlife. When we're already there. Yeah, the so grant it's, money it's is about conservation. Time. It's terrifying for us, but also we're being really optimistic that it could just be the greatest thing ever. Could be much better than what it's, it's always been. It could been, be, yeah, because yeah. right now we're kind of small out there. We have been because we've never had a, a lot of the funds to expand. But, you know, with, uh, you know, meeting with the county, potentially helping us with finding bigger grants and things like that. They want to keep us there, but... We also have to keep in mind that, you know, they can't just choose us because we are not a part of the county. We're a separate not-for-profit. So, you know, they think it makes sense for us to stay there because we're already there. We have all the licenses. We have more wildlife licenses than anybody else in Manatee County. So, um, and we work closely with the other rescue that would probably really be the only other rescue that could take that. And there we told them they can team up with us. So you guys could get approved, but then still where you get the boot. So yes, now the park could be purchased by the county Yeah, and they still have to make a decision of whether they're going to actually keep us there or not. And so right now, you know, they, they, the parks really want to keep us there, but it still comes down to the commissioners. So you have to give them like a big proposal and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Several Which we've already people. given them. A, we've given them a business plan and and shown some drawings of what we would like to do and how we'd like to expand there. And it would be great for the public because it would be a place where the public could come, you know, and see some native and exotic wildlife and you'd be supporting a wildlife rescue, a true wildlife rescue. We're out on the street every day rescuing injured yeah. wildlife, treating them and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I don't see the downside to doing that with this county. I mean, it, it, we we already do this, and we help the county so much by rescuing wildlife. And this is just giving us a place to expand and grow and and uh, help us. One you know, strong help point you. we have is that a lot of people in Manatee County government know who we are, and we work closely with a lot of the government yeah, officials. A lot of the Bradenton police and most of the sheriffs know Damon and I. I mean, they know yeah. that we're the guys that are out there rescuing all of the animals. Uh, we just need more and more people in the area to know that 
We're the guys that are doing it. People, there's, there's so many people out there that love animals that, you know, they take their families to the state parks. They take their families out bird watching or whatever they're really into. And they don't really realize the we've rescued thousands of animals and re-released them. And it gets to the point where after all of the years we've been doing it, I occasionally look up and see something fly by and think, huh, you know, I wonder if I rescued that or its mother or father or a grandfather yeah. or a great grandfather. Every or street took some part in it, right? Every street I drive by in this county, I've yeah. rescued an animal on yeah, or absolutely. in that general area. And yeah. I've been here for uh, twenty years, twenty plus, I think. Where, where are we at? We're coming up on twenty. And I, I mean, Sarasota and Manatee County, but mostly Manatee County. And like everywhere I go, I've rescued an animal there. And so we've had a huge impact on this county over that that time, that 20 years in Wildlife Inc., who we work closely with. And they've rescued so many thousands of animals in this county. And, and you know, both of us are together and we want to use this property to continue that and do better. It's, it's interesting because I was not too long ago, I was at a county commissioner's meeting, the zoning and same deal, mm-hmm. and we're fighting for the racetrack because they want to build 4,000 right. homes on top of the racetrack, right. which that. will be an insane development. Mm-hmm. And the Good dust, luck to the people listening uh, to the drag racing and stuff oh, right next no. to it. <laughs> they, already, they already don't love it, and we don't, have a, we don't have a curfew there right now, but like it's going to eventually happen, and that's a historic facility there. It's it been is, in yeah, no, forever. I'm all for that place, and you know, I know it's loud and all that, but... Uh, I mean, it's it's just a cool, unique place that um, you don't see a lot of that anymore. Yeah. You know, so and it's definitely worth saving. And what and a keeping. lot of people see when they go out to mix in fruit farms, they see they see old cages with with animals in them. They, I, I think, some people expect to see a fancy zoo. You know, you go to Zoo Tampa and you see these beautiful enclosures. That's not what we are. Those animals that are on display are ones that we saved, but we couldn't get them quite healthy enough to release. You know, the, there's a there's a blind owl. There's a there's a, a bird that that has no peripheral vision from getting hit hit by a car. Um, so it's not as though that's that it doesn't really showcase the rescues. Uh, and we're because of Florida law, we're really not allowed to showcase rescues. We're not allowed to show people all of these animals that we're rescuing and re-releasing and releasing them out back into the wild because it's actually illegal now to display any animal that's going to be re-released out in the wild. So regularly, you know, in the past few weeks, I've had a bunch of uh, giant pileated woodpeckers that I was working with to rehab and re-release. We can't do it somewhere where the public can see them. Can you document it for, say, like YouTube or something? You can. You can video or take photos. Mm -hmm. You're just not allowed to let people see in any way, really, Um, which is understandable to some degree, but you know, some stuff from a distance or, you know, making, you know, ways that they can't see you as well. But video um, documentation, like YouTube obviously could pay you and you could document yeah. this stuff and kind of yeah. follow it along that way. And that that could be a way. There's there's quite a few people on YouTube that do it. South Florida, uh, yeah. there's Camp Keenan. He does a lot of. Yeah, I definitely need to get and, more into doing that. I post a lot of photos and stuff, you know, on Instagram and, and Facebook and I have a YouTube, but I haven't done much there yet. I got to tell you, I'm just overwhelmed with, course, with work with animals, and it's really difficult right. to get. To, I film stuff all the time, and then I just don't get around to editing it and doing everything. And, and it's you know, honestly years of saying, we should publish Yeah, we should videos. do that. You know, I'm sure but you hear that all the time. If you're so you know. busy doing rescues and 
clean the cages and things like that, you just don't have the I come home and I'm dead every night. I'm yeah. like, I get to work, which, I mean, that's what you got to do, I guess, to make it. And, and you so, climb into bed and you pull the covers up and close your eyes and go, yeah. oh, what a day. And the phone <laughs> rings and somebody says, yeah, I, I, a snake in my I get calls. I hit a deer. Yeah. 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 I, 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 it doesn't fail, like... As soon as I get home from work, I live in Mayaka. Somebody calls me from West Bradenton and says, you got to gotta come to West Bradenton and get this animal. Or right at night when I'm about to go to sleep, I get a snake call or owl, something like that. And I got to get back up. I just, I hope so deep down that they accept <laughs> and buy this and turn it into it's a exciting sanctuary. Because it would be unlike anything else. And, you know, around the country, there are municipalities and counties that are starting to support wildlife mm-hmm. rescue. It's starting to become a thing, and Manatee County has the opportunity to make something that would be really cool and kind of at the forefront of it all to say, hey, we actually support wildlife rescue. We Mm -hmm. actually— It wouldn't just be great for tourism. It would be great as a service to the county for a rescue that, you know, is supported by the county uh, to rescue animals. You know, you're just—it's a win-win for everybody. But, if, you know, I would keep telling everybody, if you want to help in any way, the best thing to do is email the county commissioners and let them know yep. that we want to fund the purchase of that property to turn it into a park. It's 2525 27th Street East in Bradenton, Mix and Fruit Farms. And I'll put all the information that I can down in the description. Yeah, like and, I'll get uh, some emails from you, yeah. some ways they can donate, some ways they can help I out any way that. that's possible. Yeah. Because yeah, I think that if it comes this dreamy sanctuary yeah. or it becomes more houses. I, right. I think that's that's one of the interesting <laughs> things. So when I stood in front of the county commissioners, what they did was they constantly bragged about how great this county is. Mm-hmm. And if you tell them, well, it's not going to be great if it's just homes. It's only going to be great if there's things here. Right. We don't that have make a lot of great. attractions here. No. I mean, there's not a whole lot going on when it comes to animals. I keep telling people like between like Jungle Gardens and Tampa. I'm the only place that has a crocodile on display and has animals like that. And so, you know, we have this potential great opportunity to have a, an attraction here. And we just need the support of, you know, the county commissioners to make that. What about happen. like um, Moat Aquarium, Moat Aquarium? They're yeah, building that well, right on yeah, university. They're, yeah, they're, they're moving that facility there. And I believe they plan on putting crocodiles there. But it's kind of in line with, you know, Jungle Gardens, kind of same distance, you know. And it's going to be a state-of-the-art facility. It'll be amazing, yeah. you know. I'm excited for that as a as an attraction for, yeah. you know, children no, education and all that kind of stuff. And I think they do a good job at yeah. displaying it. And I think they're very educational and they do a lot of science and research and stuff like that. Aquariums have come so far. Yeah. I think that can really be a cool facility. Yeah, It's now. already, you know, what they have currently out on the Island out there is already amazing. Like, you know, their otter habitat and stuff like that. And, you know, it's a cool place. And, you know, I, I worked hand in hand with them. Like I said, the veterinarian from Moat for many years. So I got to hear all the great work that they did. And, and can, can they still, visit you guys now like if are you still operational yeah uh i'm doing right now booking private tours basically so you can book with me through our facebook or email which i'll be putting out more advertise for uh, advertisements for that in the next day or so but i'm definitely open to you know doing group tours and things like that so um you can get in touch with us and we'll we'll help you out and get you out there awesome you guys got anything else for us um i mean we're pretty pretty close to wrapping up here but if there's anything else obviously this was an awesome conversation. I'd love to have you guys on again as we get more yeah. information and as things change and evolve. I would, you know, the seats yeah, are always no, open. No, we should do an update after uh, this For all sure. goes down. And and uh, also we need to get you out and visit and let yes. you see some animals and, and uh, play with some dangerous stuff. <laughs> awesome. You guys got any uh, parting words for the people? Uh, 
just if you can go to uh, uh, the Manatee County website and check the commissioners. And as Cooper said, he'll put up the information and just uh, send them an email and support us in getting that property. So at the very least, even if it's if it's not for saving us, it's for saving that land and yeah. making sure it doesn't turn into homes. It's beneficial for everybody. That we that don't need homes there. And people can check us out on Facebook with the uh, Wild World Rescue and Sanctuary and see it's everyday pictures of us holding up animals. Yeah, you know we don't we don't go into a lot of description, but it's animal, 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 yeah. animal. You can all see the all the animals we're rescuing and saving. Yeah, Instagram and Facebook is just at Wild World Rescue, and that's where we show all of our rescues and and work. Awesome guys. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. I feel educated. I feel like <laughs> we definitely got a lot of good information out to the people. And um, like I said, guys, I hope to have you guys on again. If you guys have any questions directly for them, put them in the comments, and we can hope to answer them either next time or maybe you guys will hop in the comments or something. But, guys, thank you so much for coming. That'll do it. Yeah, thank you for having us. We yeah. really appreciate it. Thank awesome. You. Thanks, guys. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.